Philippians called Hold the Line. And we are at Philippians chapter 2, Philippians 2, verses 12 through 29, if you want to turn there. I want you to know that the Old Testament reading is actually quoted in this passage, specifically as, as Moses is talking about Israel being a perverse generation. In older translations it says, twisted generation. So it makes it very, very clear that that is here in this passage. I w- and so one of the challenges I'm going to give you is as I read it, see if you can find where Israel in the wilderness is actually hinted at in this passage. So out of reverence for God's word as it is read, please join me in standing. And hear the word of the Lord. Philippians 2, starting at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will genuinely be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I, as I see how it, will be with, uh, how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that short, shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This, brothers and sisters, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, we are grateful for your holy word, we pray, that you would open our eyes and ears and hearts, that we would would soak up what your spirit has breathed out here, and that it would be at work in us believers. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I hope, I hope by this point you're utterly convinced with my assertion from the very first, from the very, very beginning. And that assertion was something along this lines. Though Paul has a lot to say about joy in this letter and life purpose and peace of mind, all of those are part of the central focus of this letter. And the central focus of this letter is church unity. That was the assertion I made and I hammered it out when we worked through the several first verses and we've kept on coming back to it over and over again because Paul 
cannot let it go. That is the central purpose of this letter, which lets you know as you start reading, you pick that up, then you realize that the problem between the two Christian sisters, Euodia and Syntyche, really troubled Paul immensely. Okay? And so that should be, hopefully you're convinced. If you're not, let me go at it again. I'll try today to do some more. And so uh, the heart of the letter, as I said all along, is chapter 1, 27 through chapter 2, 11, which Pastor West talked about two weeks ago. Chapter 1, 27 through chapter 2, 11 is the very heart of this letter. And it is all about having the mind of Christ, having his mind, and having his perspective, which is actually given to us already in Jesus Christ. That was chapter 2, verse 5. And so back in chapter 127, Paul begins the heart of the letter using Roman legionnaire language, right? He talks about, uh, he uses Roman legionnaire language because Philippi was filled with a bunch of retired military. This would have resonated heavily with them. And, he, and he, he describes what it means to live as Christian citizens. That's the way it is in the Greek. Live a life worthy of the gospel is actually live out your citizenship as worthy of the gospel. Christian citizenship worthy of the gospel. And he tells you immediately in 127, what does it look like to be a Christian citizen? And it's to hold the line. You stand side by side. You have a single mind. You, you interlock shields serving together side by side as a united front. That's chapter 1, 27 through 30. If you missed it, go back and read it. It's right there. It will smack you in the face. And then Paul goes further in chapter 2, 1 through 4. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being rugged individualists who don't care what happens to anyone else. Is that what Paul says? Are you looking at your Bibles? That was chapter 2, verse 3. uh, Chapter 2, verse 2. No, he says, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. The central purpose of this letter is to promote church unity and hopefully you cannot miss it there in chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 and then all of a sudden and rightly he places the gospel he places the gospel um, right at the very core of everything he's saying verses 5 through 11 because this is the mind of Jesus that you have He was God from all eternity, but he didn't flaunt it. He didn't go around thumping his chest, pulling his suspenders out and being proud and strutting. Instead, he emptied himself by taking upon himself the form of a servant. I heard servant. Very good. And so he even humbled himself, humbled himself, where he gave himself on behalf of others, treating them as if they were more important than him, humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so the fathers highly exalted him. And so forth. Notice how Paul places the gospel as the very foundation for everything he said at this point, and he'll continue to say. And so this is the mind of Christ. And to be united to him, we then exhibit the mind of Christ together. That's what Paul says, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves as a body, as a church. 
have this mind among yourselves, uh, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We exhibit this, the mind of Christ together with each, with each other and for each other. Once this has gotten hold of you, my friends, then you can understand the rationale of the first part of this letter, chapter 1, 1 through 26, and you know where Paul is going in the remainder of this letter and where he's going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And so then at this point, Paul gives an extended set of applications to what he, of the heart of the letter, chapter 127 through 211, he's now going to give an extended set of applications. First off, applying, applying the mind of Jesus and then applying Timothy's example of the mind of Jesus, and then thirdly applying Epaphroditus' pattern. That too is an exhibit of the mind of Jesus. And that's what he's going to do. There's the three points. And so it's all for Yodia and Syntyche, whom he'll mention at the end of chapter, or the beginning of chapter 4. But everything he writes here is for the whole church to head off any further rifts like this, like what was happening with Yodian and Syntyche. And so then applying Jesus' mind, chapter 2, 12 through 18. Applying Jesus' mind, chapter 2, verse, verse 12 through 18. So as Paul jumps in here at verse 12 and 13, for example, he gets right to the heart of how Yodia and Syntyche need to be thinking because here's more of what chapter 127 through 211 looks like when it's lived out. Listen to what he says. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, right? As you've always obeyed. So now not only my presence, but much more my absence. Work out. Work out the applications. Work out the implications. Work out um, uh, 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 what it means that you've actually been saved. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work. For his good pleasure. And notice how Paul puts that. Everything I've said to you and everything I'm driving at in reference to all of this, you can do it. Go do it. You can do it because God already began it in you. You got it? Right, that's the big point. There's the gospel point. There's the grace point right there. And so then, working out our salvation, working out its implications. Unfortunately, when we were in the church of Christ, we... We horribly misused verse 12 and 13. We said, yeah, you've got to work for your salvation. Does Paul say you have to work for your salvation in verse 12 and 13? No. It's already given to you. So what does he say to do? Work it out, right? Work just like you would a math problem. You work out the math problem, right? You get from here to there. And so that's what you're doing. You, that salvation you've been given, now you work out what it means, Okay? You work out this salvation, and you can do that because it's God is already at work in you. So working out this salvation, then, takes work and effort, but it is not based on work and effort. This salvation is, uh, is to be worked out, right? So it's, it takes work and effort, but it's not based on work and effort. It's God graciously already at work in us, and graciously at work on us. And now it shows itself in the way that we respond, how we treat one another. I love the way Sinclair Ferguson puts this. I believe this is in your sermon notes. Sinclair Ferguson, is it in there? Yes, good. And so this is in his little study guide of Philippians. If it takes effort, it cannot be the fruit of the Spirit's presence. 
But this is a distortion of the New Testament's teaching. God's grace in our lives does not relieve us of personal activity. It makes us work harder. God works in, therefore we work out His grace. We are called to roll up our spiritual sleeves and get down to the business of building the kingdom of God. And so that very first statement I quote there is actually a mistaken notion that people have. And Sinclair Ferguson is pushing against that mistaken notion. But I love the picture. Roll up your sleeves and get to work. Why? Because God is already at work in you. Praise the Lord. Right? And so then, this all fits what Paul said earlier. If you go back and look at chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Go back and look at chapter 1, 4 through 6. Uh, in verse 3, he says, I thank God uh, in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because... Here's why my prayer is with joy. Because of your koinonia, your partnership, your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So notice... This partnership has been, has been um, spawned in them by God. And so he goes on and he says, And I am sure of this, that he who had began a good work in you. What is the good work he began in you? Verse 4 and uh, 5. This partnership, this koinonia. The fact that you have fellowship is the grace of God. Never forget that. A divided church, a fragmenting church, a splintering church is God's judgment upon that church. A church that is growing in unity is the grace of God at work in that church. Unity is the grace of God. Shattering, splintering, divisiveness is the judgment of God. And I've made a whole big case of that looking through First uh, and Second Chronicles. And so I'm sure of this, that he who's begun a good work in you, this work of partnership, of koinonia, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. All of this fits together, uh, what Paul is saying here. And so then, it fits exactly what Paul was pointing out in chapter 1, verses 4 through 6 about the gospel, uh, the grace-made, gospel-wrought partnership. And so then, as Paul is now developing how we apply the mind of Jesus, he then goes backward in time, picking up then at verse 14, he goes backward in time into the wilderness with Israel as a gra graphic backdrop. And you know that because verse 14, what is the first thing he says you're not supposed to do? Verse 14, come on. No grumbling. And you know, you good Bible readers, Israel was famous for grumbling in the wilderness for 40 stinking years. That's all they ever seemed to do. Grumble, 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 grumble. Even when they were being rescued from Egypt and they're at the Red Sea, they're grumbling. And then they get to Meribah and Massa and they grumble. And oftentimes Moses has to say, look, you're not, you're not grumbling at me. You're really grumbling at the Lord, right? All the way through the wilderness wandering. And so notice that Paul goes all the way back then and says, don't be like Israel in the wilderness. And you know that's what he's talking about because later in the very next verse, he'll talk about the twisted and crooked generation taking that phrase right out of Deuteronomy 32 Moses is characterizing Israel as a perverse, twisted, crooked generation. And so Paul says, instead, no grumbling. Instead, learn to stand one another and stand with one another. Let me say that again because that's, I think, very potent. 
By grace, you can now learn to stand one another and stand with one another. Did you pick up the nuance there? Right? It's easy in our world not to stand people. That happens all the time. That shows grace. That shows the gospel's begun to take root. Learning to stand one another and stand with one another. And so that's why he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Not that you may make yourself blameless and innocent, but that you may show yourself. You may, you may actually exhibit what you already are, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of an Israel-like environment, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, etc. And so then we're not to act like Israel in the wilderness. Instead, we're to be blameless and innocent children of God, blameless and innocent toward God, of course, but also blameless and innocent children of God toward one another, in all of our engagements with one another, in all of our gospel, or grace-made, gospel-wrought partnership and koinonia with one another. And so Paul says, this is how you shine. This is the rest of verse 15. Um, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, uh, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. This is how you shine as lights by actually being blameless and innocent toward one another in our engagements with each other. Now, I know I'm on the right track because that's exactly what Jesus said. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. That's how you shine as lights in the world, because it's totally countercultural. And so then, this is how we hold the line. That's how he goes on to say it at the very beginning of verse 16. Holding fast the word of life. Now understand that the unity, the peace, includes, it has to include the purity. Holding fast the word of life. The two have to go together. Right? You cannot have one without the other. For all of our um, statements about pure doctrine, we cannot really be having pure doctrine if we're killing one another or eating one another. There's no peace. I'm sorry, you just can't have it. And there cannot be any real peace without the purity, without the doctrine, without the teaching, right? Holding on to the, true, the word of life. That's why God says in Zechariah 8, love, truth, and peace. It's both, not either or, both and. And Paul puts it together right there. It's both and. Now, someone may be asking, well, why would there be grumbling and disputing going on in the church at Philippi that Paul needs to address? Well, it's because when they and when we have forgotten our Lord, the Lord of verses 5 through 11, when we have forgotten this Jesus, verses 5 through 11, Jesus as he is freely offered in the gospel, when we have forgotten our Lord, we can then easily and quickly turn on one another just like Israel did in the wilderness. And you go back and you read the wilderness wandering and you realize they were the most vicious towards one another when they were the most faithless toward God and they had no confidence in Him. They were the most vicious toward one another when they had the least amount of confidence in God. That's what happens. My friends, when we do that, when we turn on one another, when we do that, then we are acting just like the dark and dreary world that we live in. 
That's what he says, right? Talking about living in, the monks, in this uh, crooked, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. When we are uh, divided and when we are uh, chewing each other up and spitting each other out, right? We're, we're living as if we are in the world. The world is a dark and dreary, divided and disjointed realm. And it is filled with aggressions and speech and actions. And, 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 and yeah, aggressive speech and aggressive action. And when we turn on one another, we're being just as worldly. When we turn on one another, we're being just as worldly as the biggest dope-smoking, embezzling, fornicating pagan you can imagine. Let me say that again. When we start turning on one another, acting like the rest of the world around us, then we're just as worldly as the biggest dope-smoking, embezzling, fornicating pagan you can imagine. My friends, Jesus broke into our dark and dreary world. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. He broke into our dark and dreary world with humility, not arrogance. He broke into our dark and dreary world with service, not self-serving, but other-serving. He broke into our dark and dreary world with obedience to the Father, not disobedience. He did this for us and for our salvation. And so then, if we have Jesus, and Jesus has us, then He is continuing to break into our dark and dreary world with real light for us, with real light in us, and with real light through us, shining as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Which means then, when we're standing one another and standing with one another, it means then we stand out in this dark and dreary world. Ann and I, as you know, went camping. We went to Lakes, uh, Lake Fort Smith State Park, and then we went to Lake Eufaula. And it's great because there were like no city lights anywhere. And this happened when the family camp out. We went to Alabaster Cavern State Park in the evening. There's no lights anywhere. So guess what the darkness does? It gets really intense, Right? Well, guess what the stars do and the planets do? Yeah, they get brighter, right? They show themselves brighter. We even saw the Milky Way. We were sitting out, the adults, we were sitting around the campfire looking up all of us in our chairs. You could tell we were getting older. We we're all ready to fall asleep. We we're all looking, sitting back in our chairs like this and going, oh, look, at there's that one. And we started looking at the planets and stuff. And then, we, hey, there's the Milky Way, right? You can see all that. Now, think about that for a minute. The dark night consumes everything, and so the stars and the planets in the sky begin to explode in brilliance as we apply the mind of Jesus by standing together, by being united together. As Paul says back in verse 2, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. As we do those things, being blameless, innocent children of God together, then we light up the sky with Jesus' light. We light up the sky with Jesus' light. That's how the world knows the North Star, so to speak. It's because it's shining bright. We look odd to the rest of the world. The rest of our world wants to divide over everything you can imagine whether or not you use pampers or cloth diapers, 
whether or not you wear a mask during COVID or no mask, whether you vaccinate or don't vaccinate, whether you vote Republican or you vote Democrat, whether you want to be a, a Billy, Billy Yank or a Johnny Reb. We divide over everything. We divide even over soccer teams. Just go to England. They, just, they riot over those things, right? We divide over everything because that's what happened in Genesis 3. The fall impacted us as humans. How do I know? Because Genesis 4. How united were Cain and Abel? First thing you notice about the fall, the first action is there's fratricide, right? There's division. That's the world you and I live in, and we've been living in it for millennia. And when all of a sudden people are brought by Jesus together because of Christ, and it crosses all of those lines, ethnic lines, economic lines, educational lines, political lines, all drawn together around Jesus because of who he is, what he has done, is doing, and will do for his people. It shouts loud to the world, and it's a bright light. It's Jesus' light shining in us and through us. Which means a lot, then, about the final day. Notice that Paul goes to the final day. He says the rest of verse 16, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that, that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. It'll make it so much sweeter. Lord, here we are. They've been united together through, the, the, through their lives on earth. Oh, it'll make heaven even better because we're already practicing what's going to happen there, right? It's a sweet moment. And then he just continues from there. It'll Make that final day bigger and a happier festival of celebration. Because we will actually enjoy that day together. Because in the present, we have lived for each other's progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 25 and 26. And so then to take these applications out of the abstract, if that's too abstract for you, he uses two real flesh and blood people as examples and illustrations of his applications. He uses Timothy first, and then he uses Epaphroditus. Now notice as he talks about Timothy, especially when you get to verse 20 and 21, because Paul is quoting himself in verse 20 and 21. He's quoting what he said back up in verse 3 and 4. See if you can see it. I'm going to read it. See if you can find the phrases that he's quoting from himself back in verse 3 and 4. For I have none like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Seeking their own interests is the opposite of what he just said. We're not to seek our own interests, but the welfare of others, right? And so Timothy is the exhibit. He is an example of that. Paul is, Paul is saying, Timothy is clearly an example of what I've just written about. In fact, he's one of the few that I know of who is. And of course, this has a lot to say when you get to Yodi and Syntyche. Is there rift because they're more concerned about each other than they are their own welfare, their own benefit? Probably not. Their rift, as almost all rifts are, because I'm more concerned about me and what I want and not necessarily what's best for you. And so he's applying Timothy's example. Here's the illustration number one, Timothy. Timothy's a prime example. And then he goes to Epaphroditus and he takes Epaphroditus' pattern and he applies it as well. And it's, in, it's the, the rest of the chapter, verse 25 through tw uh, 30 actually, through 30. 
And Epaphras is a, self, is, a, is a self-giving, serving Paul, serving others kind of person, the exhibit of the things he's been talking about. In fact, he served me and he served Christ and it took its toll on him. That's to summarize what Paul says about Epaphroditus. It's interesting that here he actually uses a statement. He, calls, he says that uh, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, it's the very same thing he's going to say about, about uh, Yodi and Syntyche in chapter 4, verse 3, that they are some of his fellow workers in the Gospels, he will say. Just alerting them, alerting them that they're cut from the same gospel fabric. So therefore, how could they allow their rift to rip the church apart and to keep them apart? And so there you go. To put that passage in a nutshell or together, that's the passage and what Paul is doing there. So as I tie this all up or as I dock my boat, whatever you want to call it, notice first off, that Paul has no problem holding himself out as a role model, nor does he have any trouble pointing to others as good examples, Timothy and Epaphroditus. In fact, Paul will say when you get to chapter 3 and verse 17, he will say, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, this can be quite tricky, especially because of our very, very, very self-righteous hearts. Right? Because of our very, very self-righteous hearts, this can be tricky. But let me, let me apply it this way. There is value in noticing the godly example of others, but also important to remember and always remember that you yourself are an example to others. You are. You can never not be. You are always an example. Now, you may be a good example, or you may be a bad example, but you're always an example. And so, my friends, as you have hold of Jesus and he has hold of you, then there's a lot of good exampling that can and will go on so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out, talking about his life, even as I may be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also be glad and rejoice with me. So there's first. Number secondly is this. Dear friends, if you want to impact, if you really want to impact our dark and dreary, dread-filled world, Jesus has already told us how. And Paul is capitalizing on it here. We want to immediately go to, go to politics. And I don't have any problem with you, you know, talking to your congressman and getting legislation passed. I'm not talking against any of those things. Our problem is that we often think that will save America and that will save our society and that will save, 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 save. But Jesus already gave us the way to go. Right? And Paul is capitalizing on here. I've already told you the, great, the new commandment. This is how the world will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let me take you to one other place in John. John chapter 17, I want you to listen to Jesus' high priestly prayer because it becomes part of his prayer. John 17, starting back up in verse 17, notice the place of truth, right? So we've got to have the purity and peace. 
the truth. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, consecrate, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. You've got to have that part before the rest of it can also continue to, to flourish. But then Jesus goes on in his prayer. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Right? So there's number one. So that the world may know that you've sent me. People don't believe in Jesus because the church doesn't believe Jesus. That they may be one so that the world will know that you've sent me. But then he comes back and he'll say it again and he'll say one more thing. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one as even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. That the world may know that you have loved them as much as you have loved, as you have loved me. Right? So Jesus has already given us what, how we can tr- impact our dark and dreary and dread-filled world. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book back in 1971 called The Church at the End of the 20th Century. Anybody ever read that? Yes. The Church at the End of the 20th Century is very dated because computers are just a thing of IBM cards. For example, that's in here, right? But he is, he is looking with some foresight or farsightedness, if you will, in the book. And he is warning us of what is coming down the pike and what we should do. And one of the biblical instructions he gave placed love and unity at the centerpiece. Let me just read it to you. It's on page 41 if you have that book. Quote, Our Christian organizations must be communities in which others see what God has revealed in the teaching of his word. They should see that it is possible to have something beautiful and unusual in this world in our communication and in communities at this point of history. We may preach truth. We may preach orthodoxy. We may even stand against the practice of untruth strongly. But if others cannot see something beautiful in our human relationships, if they do not see that upon the basis of what Christ has done, our Christian communities can stop their infighting, then we are not living properly. End of quotation. Very potent statement. He's drawing from what Jesus has said in the Gospel of John and what Paul is driving at here. So if you want to really impact a dark and dreary and dread-filled world, Jesus has already given us our marching orders and he's already begun these things in us. So work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who already is working in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. Thirdly, this whole passage growing out of verses 5 through 11, what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he has done, is doing, and will do for his people. This whole passage growing out of chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 should lift your hearts. Dear friends, you really truly are saved. If you believe in Jesus, you truly are saved by God's goodness and by God's graciousness alone in Christ alone. 
That means you don't need to sweat and fret about how you can somehow gain and uh, gain enough merit to get God's love and attention. Paul's emphasizing, part of Paul's emphasis is that you already have his love and attention. You already have his love and attention. And thank you. Thank you. That is worth saying amen to. You already have his love and attention. And in that pleasure, you are set free then to boldly strike out and apply the mind of Jesus with gladness and joy. You don't have to worry about a zero-sum game, right? Where, where, well, if I give you, if I show you grace, then there's not enough grace to go around for me, or whatever the case is. How about we reason? And we usually reason weird. No, you are set free. You already have God's love, and you have, already have God's um, attention. That's what the cross tells you. So you don't have to fret and sweat. You're set free to go do what the world won't do and can't do. To love one another, to stand one another and stand with one another. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord, that you have put us on a totally different path. One that truly is countercultural. One that really is otherworldly. Lord, we pray that you would help us. We would, you would help us to grow. Help us to work out this salvation that you've already launched and spawned in us. To work out its implications. To work out how to apply it. How it should look in this uh, relationship and in that relationship. And the way we are as a church. To work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Knowing that you, it's you. You who have already begun a good work in us. It is you who are already working in us both to will and to work for your good pleasure. Lord, may we be known not as a grumbling, disputing people, but may we be seen and known as the faultless and blameless children of God, even in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, shining like bright lights in a dark sky, holding fast the word of truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.